Patricia Wednesday Breakfast acknowledges that we broadcast from the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and Borong people of the Kulin Nation. We pay respect to their elders, past and present, and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nations people in the face of ongoing colonization and settlement. We recognize sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good morning. Um, very, I'm doing well. How are you all doing? Been good. Very pleased to be inside again. It's a wet, wet morning out there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was actually drizzling quite a bit and it's quite cold as well. I think it was about 13 degrees. And um, But yeah, it wasn't too bad when I came in here. So I feel being a bit more warm now. So that's a good thing. <laughs> well, we've got Wednesday brekkie to warm everyone up. Did mm-hmm. uh, everyone have a good break over the Easter period? Oh yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, I, to be honest, I was just pretty much working because I don't usually, I don't, I haven't really celebrated Easter honestly, and um, for my whole life, I think so. I don't, I don't actually really know what we do, but I do realize that it's actually quite important fest, um, celebration here, and because I was like, oh, because I wanted to go to this like pasta restaurant um, last week, and then they weren't open for four days, and I was like, oh my god, I didn't know people closed that long for Easter break. I think four days is quite long mm. mostly mm. uh saturday is not a public holiday so things are usually open but um mm. yeah a lot of places were shut good friday and then uh, oh, yeah. sunday is sunday that's <laughs> and, true and uh, then monday is a public holiday mm. too yeah so what did you get up to sonara um my family's also never really celebrated easter but i've grown up like you know going to a catholic school as well so i know how important it is but um my like personally at home I've never celebrated it but I still enjoyed the break and um had some time with my family and we all went to like a local like community iftar dinner over the weekend which was nice um which is pretty different I'm liking how Easter and um, Ramadan and Passover everything's just crossing crossing over with each other it's really nice yeah Mm. it is uh I went off to the Islamic Museum of Australia on Saturday, yes, because that mm. was the day it was open. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, obviously Ramadan Cafe was very empty <laughs> uh, but had a fabulous time. If anyone hasn't uh, got over to Thornbury, it's uh, a visit I recommend. So, uh, yeah, it's a, a lovely uh, kind of small to medium museum gallery Mm. uh, with art architecture and um, a lot of uh, sort of displays about the faith obviously and what I really liked was uh, they have uh, they've elevated women's voices and uh, we hear a lot about uh, Muslims and Islamic uh, communities in the Australian community Mm. so yeah, we really get a sense of the contributions and the presence mm-hmm. 
of uh, that community. Mm, I'll yeah. have to definitely check that out. Yeah. Be really interesting to to hear your views on it. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, I'd 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 want to go there as well. Um, so, what do we have today for our show? Well, yeah, first of all, I'm uh, coming up with um, a segment on uh, the fall of Porter Davis, which um, you know collapsed last month along with um, Lloyd group and um, I'm going to be discussing that with Paula Gerber who is professor of law at uh, Monash University and you know we're just going to talk about how this happened and um, the systemic problems in the construction industry that may have caused this and next up um, Grace I think you have something yeah definitely um, I'm speaking to a writer, editor, and critic, Ben Brooker, who uh, wrote about his rec- uh, wrote about an uh, article for Overland, uh, which he critiques the uproar brought by media outlets, Sydney Morning Herald, and the age of war-mongering commentary, uh, which was batched red alert against China. We will also be discussing the tales of China invasion and why war continues to be a discussion in this time. And that'll be followed at about 10 to 8 with a discussion with Dr Alison Barnes and we'll be um, listening to what uh, she says about the report of the National President. Uh, apologies. She is the National President of the National Tertiary Education Union and she will be talking about the union's report into university wage theft. And then... Just after eight, uh, we'll be continuing our series uh, for Autism Awareness Month and I'll be uh, bringing you a discussion with Beth Radolsky, who is an autistic autism researcher, PhD candidate and the project manager neurodiversity at La Trobe University. Beth's going to be talking about neurotypical privilege, burnout and intersection uh, with gender. Mm, interesting. So, Bea, we've got a full show. Shall, shall we move on to our headlines for today? Yep, so first up, we'll be, uh, we have Patrick on our show today as well. Uh, good morning. Uh, yes, uh, headlines for today. Uh, big news out of New South Wales this morning for your Wednesday. In New South Wales, the New South, newly elected New South Wales Labor government has discussed the idea of a demerger of the Murrumbidgee Regional High School in the New South Wales Riverina region with the support of sitting member of Murray Independent Helen Dalton. The Deputy Premier and Minister for Education, Prue Carr, will travel to the school's town of Griffith to discuss the demerger in the coming weeks after the Deputy Premier met with the sitting MP uh, discussing the idea uh, post-election week. Miss Dalton said this update is great news for the community and reflects the recommendations that were put forward by the 2019 University of Sydney report findings into the failed merger, which stated it shouldn't have gone ahead after the former coalition government's decision to merge Wade and Griffith High Schools back in 2019. Now to you, Grace, with Super. Awesome. Um, so Industry Super Australia latest report has found that Australia's gig workers are missing out on $400 million a year in super contributions. This includes delivery drivers, uh, disability carers, 
IT professionals, education workers, and other services, and they make up at least 200 to 75,000 workers that ISA has estimates are in the gig economy. They, this amount means that each worker could have, in average, attained at least $29,000 more towards their retirement funds if the super was paid to on-demand workforce. The gig workforce are basically young students or unemployed, and many live with a disability. If they work on average uh, 14.5 hours per week, uh, earning at least $24 hours, $24 per hour, they are basically missing out on 1,900 super contributions a year. So now passing on to Claudia. Yes, and in a report uh, released yesterday uh, called Inequality on Steroids Distribution of Economic Growth in Australia, the Australia Institute calculates that in the 10-year period between 2009 and 2019, the top 10% of Australian income earners received almost all of the gains of the country's economic recovery. That is, the wealthiest group of people secured 93% of the income growth in that 10-year period, and the remaining 90% of Australians received very little of the fruits of that economic expansion. And the interesting thing was that is a stark contrast to earlier periods of history uh, in the 10 years post-war, 1950 to 1960, the top uh, 10% of people only received 4% of um, growth and the bottom 90% received 96%. So things have changed in federal politics, Liberal frontbencher Julian Lisa has resigned as Shadow Attorney-General and Shadow Minister for Indigenous Australians in order to join the Yes campaign for the Indigenous Voice. And in the art world, John Olson has died at the age of 95. That's all for headlines this morning and we'll take a short music break. Yeah, so now we'll be listening to Hammock by Piritu. So swing me your heart in a hammock And three years of toil for your I've had a few jobs over the years, none I've really loved. A mate suggested I use my skills to teach. Turns out I only needed to study for under two years. Now I'm in demand, in a secure career I love. Come on kids, gather round. Are you ready? Fast track your study and start teaching sooner with an accelerated learning program. Visit vic.gov.au forward slash teach the future. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne. A 3CR supporter. Things need topping up every now and then. Monty, Auntie. Thanks, Pop. Including your COVID protection. If you're an adult and it's been six months since you caught COVID or had a COVID jab, you can now top up with a free COVID 19 booster. 
It helps keep you and your mob protected from serious illness from COVID-19. So talk to your doctor or health worker about a free COVID-19 booster or visit health.gov.au forward slash top up to find out more. Authorised by the Australian Government, Canberra. A 3CR supporter. And you're back on 3CR. That was Hammock by Piritu. And now I'll be passing on to Sinera. Thanks, Grace. And thanks, everyone, for the news headlines for today. Um, So now, uh, going on to home builder Porter Davis, um, they have collapsed um, uh, late last month, and that left thousands of customers in limbo and their future homes abandoned, as over over 1,700 properties remained unfinished. And now they are still unable to secure new builders to finish off their properties. To discuss how this will affect not only customers, but also the construction industry, we are joined by Paula Gerber, who is Professor of Law at Monash University. Welcome to the show, Paula, and good morning. Good morning, and thank you for having me. No worries. Thank you for joining us. Um, So first of all, how do companies like Porter Davis and Lloyd Group go into liquidation when there are 1,700 properties still in progress across the state and nearly 800 more customers have signed contracts to build homes? Well, unfortunately, we're in what is being termed a profitless boom for the construction industry. So there are lots and lots of houses that need to be built, uh, lots of homeowners who are wanting to do extensions and renovations and, and new homes because of the government stimulus that they uh, they released during COVID to keep the building industry afloat. So there's no shortage of work. What there is a shortage of is materials, um, and a big part of that is the war in Ukraine. A lot of our timber comes from forests in, in Ukraine, so that's all... Uh, slowed down and prices have escalated uh, for basic materials. And then we've got also a labour shortage because, of course, we closed our borders during uh, the the first few years of the COVID pandemic and they haven't really, you know, people haven't started flooding in again. And a lot of uh, workers in the construction industry uh, come from overseas. So the the perfect storm, if you like, of shortage of, of uh, materials and therefore price escalations, shortage of labour and therefore cost escalations of that, and fixed price contracts, which means that when there are all these increases in the cost, the builders can't pass them on to the homeowners because they signed a contract two years ago that said they'd build the house for, say, $350,000, even though now it's going to cost them $400,000. Mm. And... Are there any other systematic issues of the construction industry that may have contributed to this on top? Well, the regulation of the construction industry, particularly in Victoria, is really out of date and it's no longer fit for purpose. So uh, we have the Domestic Building Contracts Act from 1995. And yes, it's been modified a few times since then, but it, it really needs a complete overhaul. And one of the things that I think needs to go is a prohibition on cost-plus contracts. Now, cost-plus contracts are those building contracts where the builder says, I'll build you your house for whatever it costs me in labour and materials plus a percentage on top for my profit, let's say 5% or or 10%. 
Now, the government, with the best of intentions to protect consumers, uh, prohibited those sort of contracts in the 1995 legislation. Uh, and, it, you know, the systemic problem in the industry, or one of them, is that we can't uh, contract on that basis. And when you've got these unprecedented times uh, where things are changing very quickly, we need more flexibility in the contractual models that we can use. Mm. And do you think that incidents like this can provide an opportunity to reform um, laws like this or the industry itself? Yes. Look, I think um, as disastrous as this is for every customer of Porter Davis, and I do really feel for them, I think we do need to look at this as an opportunity to, or basically a kick up the butt, to um, really take reform seriously. And we need to reform the legislation. We also need to change the culture of the industry. It is a very adversarial, macho culture. And part of the reason for that is after mining, it has the lowest participation rate for women in the industry. And I think having that sort of gender inequality really spills over into how they communicate with clients. Perhaps if there were more women in the industry, uh, there would have been less burying their head in the sand and more um, talking to customers earlier and saying, look, you know, we need to let you know that we're in strife. Can we renegotiate our contract uh, to help us, you know, both to be able to deliver this project? Because clearly... Even though the, the homeowners think they're, they're doing great because they've got this fixed-price contract, if the builder goes bust, that contract's not worth the paper it's written on. So, um, yeah, I think we, we really should take this as an opportunity to do reform on multiple fronts. Mm. And what, how, uh, you know, what do you think this means for the future of the construction industry in the midst of a housing crisis? Well, we... The, that's a really good question because we are in the midst of a housing crisis. We desperately need new homes to be built. Perhaps one of the other uh, things that this will be a catalyst for is looking at new ways of building. So, for example, in Germany, we're now seeing 3D printed homes being built, being certified, being approved and being lived in. Mm-hmm. Um, again, our regulation is not at a stage where that could happen in Australia. We couldn't do 3D printed homes that would pass the the regulatory requirements and, and get a building permit and occupancy permit. So I think we should be investing and exploring a lot more about new technologies that mean we can build our houses much more efficiently, much more quickly than we are currently doing. Mm-hmm. And what does this, um, you know, what did this incident and the collapse of these um, home builders mean for um, the workers who are employed, uh, the builders who are employed to work on these properties? Um, what is the situation with uh, workers' rights at the moment with const- uh, the construction industry? Well, I'm not across uh, how much they're owed by. Uh, by these companies that have gone into into liquidation, but they would be, uh, you know, hopefully there will be um, some security for them in terms of getting paid uh, outstanding entitlements. But looking forward, uh, employment-wise, they're very employable. Um, other other builders who have been facing, as I said earlier, this 
shortage in supply of, of workers will snap up any experienced contractor. And, you know, Porter Davis had a very good reputation prior to uh, actually becoming insolvent. So um, I'm sure that the employees uh, will be able to get work elsewhere, um, but they may, may be out of pocket from uh, unpaid entitlements by Porter Davis. Mm. And, yeah, um, also a last question was... Oh, sorry, just one moment. Yeah. Um, oh, I've lost my train of thought. But um, <laughs> okay. um, just the last question before we go. Um, is there anything else that you'd like our audience to know about this? Um, I think just to be very cautious when you, if you are undertaking building work, make sure that there is insurance in place because we have heard through the media that there are um, a number of uh, families who, it appears, paid their deposit before mm. a building permit was issued, before they had insurance in place. So they've actually you know, completely lost their, their deposit. And, um, you know, there is a, an obligation on, build, on homeowners and people embarking on building projects to make sure they're informed about what their rights are, what the builder's obligations are, and that they are being protected before they hand over a single dollar to the builder. Yeah. Well, you actually answered uh, what I remembered my question was going to be about. So thank you about that. Uh, thank you for that. Okay. And um, yeah, thank you so much for joining us today, Paula. It was a pleasure to hear from you. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Bye-bye. And you're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast, and that was Professor Paula Gerber from the Monash University's Faculty of Law. And um, on another note, Paula is also passionate about human rights, as she is the director of Kaleidoscope Human Rights Foundation. And she has also developed this website that provides information and uh, about it provides information about the laws used to persecute LGBTIQ plus individuals around the world, and that is antigaylaws.org. And we'll be right back after a short break. From Iran to the Americas, the Pacific to Palestine, and here in so-called Australia, people are standing up for freedom and liberation. This May Day at Melbourne State Library, join the Voice of Revolution Iran Melbourne, the Black People's Union, renegade activists, unionists, and people from all over the world as we stand together in understanding that we are all in this together. A lineup of speakers and music from around the world demanding justice and celebrating our common struggles and our common humanity will be announced on the event page soon. You can find the event by searching May Day for Freedom and Liberation on Facebook. May Day for Freedom and Liberation, 5.30pm, Monday 1st of May at State Library, Victoria. A 3CR community radio supporter. CR is a community radio license holder. What you hear on community radio is governed by the community radio codes of practice. 
The codes of practice cover matters relating to program content, including local content, news, current affairs, Australian music content, programs for children, and the responsibilities associated with broadcasting by and for the community. They also cover aspects such as community access and participation in how 3CR operates. Copies of the codes are available from our website. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash who we are. And we're back on Wednesday breakfast. Thanks for tuning in this morning. Well, lovely to have you with us. We're going to go to a song now. Uh, this is Lavender by Phoebe. And Phoebe is a 21-year-old singer-songwriter from Melbourne. She has been performing for her friends and family and loves writing music. She plans on releasing more music later this year, so uh, look out for her. And here is Lavender. Constant rain Try to float but fall farther away I've been running in the dark I've been struggling to move on I've been trying to keep up I've tried to push away All the troubles from my day All the ones from above
tried to push away all the troubles from my day, all the ones from above. Was Lavender by Phoebe. China is one of Australia's largest trading partners, and yet the media hostility towards China has been bittersweet for the past many years. And the topic of war comes into discussion in this time of era. Writer, editor, and critic Ben Brooker recently wrote an article called "Conga Line to Armageddon." The rush to get us into war in with China, which critiques the alarming right claims brought forward by media outlets, Sydney Morning Herald, and the Age of Invasion from China. Uh, we will also be discussing the tales of China's invasion throughout history and why war continues to be a discussion in this time. Joining us now is Ben Brooker. Hi, Ben. Uh, I think we have lost Ben. Um, We'll get back and we'll get back into uh, this after once we have sorted this out. Still running by Spacey Jane. Um, 
well, we managed to get back on Ben Broker. So basically, uh, Ben is a writer, editor, and critic who recently wrote an article called Conga Line to Armageddon, the rush to get us into a war with China, where he critiques the alarming claims brought forward by media outlets Sydney Morning Herald and The Age regarding the invasion from China. We'll also be discussing the tales of China's invasion throughout history and why war continues to be a discussion in this time. Joining us now is Ben Brooker. Hi, Ben. Hello, Grace. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for coming in. I'm so sorry about all the happenings just now. But uh, so could you first tell us what the claims by the media were made regarding the invasion? Sure. So the article was really a response to a series of three articles that uh, ran in the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age a few weeks ago. Mm -hmm. The series was called Red Alert, and it was essentially authored by um, a panel of uh, what they called national security experts. And these pieces, in in fairly extraordinary and uh, I think quite inflammatory language, made the case that um, war with China um, is imminent and uh, might happen within the space of three years. And it illustrated this with incredibly kind of lurid um, projections of what would happen in terms of um, a bombardment of missiles on Australia, cyber attacks and so on. And um, it, it was really shocking to me and a, a, lot, a lot of people that um, these two newspapers, which are um, the most read in Australia, would um, go, go down this, this road that we've seen many times before in Australia of um, stirring up a really quite, I think, a, an unfounded um, red scare. Mm. And what what did the series further proposed as they as they were moving on talking about this? Uh, sorry, can you repeat that question? Uh, what did the series further proposed? They um, so there were a series of articles as I mentioned, and they they canvassed um, a range of possibilities and. Uh, one of them was uh, national conscription, so compulsory military service, and also the hosting of American nuclear missiles on Australian soil. And the readers were supposed to take these suggestions seriously, but of course they they, they sound incredibly warmongering. Um, and within the context as well of the, the 20th anniversary of the Iraq War, mm. um, this was um, even more disturbing. And uh, I think what we're seeing once again is the media very much doing the government's work for it in terms of um, selling its defence policy, which we know has included recently this uh, almost $400 billion announcement, um, uh, the the AUKUS uh, submarine deal. Mm, I see. And so you you touched on a few issues in your article, um, and this was especially where the series, they did not offer a balance of inclusion and contrary views regarding the potential risk posed by China and their military ambitions. So what was meant to be the purpose of the debate and why why is war still even in, in discussion? Right. I mean, I think that's a really good question. The, uh, the, the series was essentially spearheaded by um, the newspaper's international editor, Peter Hartcher, who's well known as, as being a bit of a China hawk. And in defending the series afterwards, once it, it copped a, a bit of criticism, he, he, he said that um, he was just interested in sparking a debate that, that we have to have. But, of course, the response to that, I think, should be, why have a debate in which all of your commentators um, are on exactly the same page? It doesn't feel like genuine editorial balance, which is what you would want to be brought to bear on an issue as, as important as this. And in my view and in the view of a lot of people, it's 
it, it wasn't a balanced series of articles that was engaging in a good faith debate about the prospect of an increasingly powerful China. It, it felt like sheer red baiting. And to have um, a, a group of five commentators, all of whom are, are known as being China hawks, doesn't feel like the kind of editorial balance that you would want on an issue as important as this. Mm, that's that's very true, and um, and and yeah, obviously we we can tell that the war is still even in discussion because of all these exceptions with like the war stories and the evasions from like um, countries. And do do you think these have been very justified reactions, uh, or or is this just an unnecessary uproar in the battle of ego? Um, yeah, I think that's a good question. Look, I, I think um, I think there are important conversations to be had about China's role in the region in 2023 and how Australia best responds to that. Mm. But I think um, this kind of coverage is, is well beneath what you would expect of newspapers like The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald, which are now, of course, owned by um, the Nine Network. And it was interesting to see, even on some of the commercial um, TV networks, there was pushback against... Um, the the line that the Red Alert series was was running in those newspapers. And I, I think there is, you know, if, if there's one kind of positive around this, I think it is in the, the criticism that these pieces received. I think the Australian public and the Australian public that consumes this kind of media is very much um, awake now, I think, to the role that the media can play, wittingly or unwittingly, in, in drumming up the, the case for war. And as I mentioned earlier, we're now in the 20th anniversary of the war in Iraq, and we know that the global media was highly complicit in making the case for that war, which, of course, turned out to be completely unfounded and actually illegal. And so I think there is a real risk here of repeating these exact same mistakes, which I think is why pushing back against um, these kind of red alert, these kind of red baiting, um, articles is so important. Mm. And then you, you also, and with this, you also mentioned that this was kind of like a, a very similar thing regarding the uh, the media's uh, reaction towards the AUKUS submarine deal. And and with that, there was also like the way they react to it with like this TV studios, as you have uh, quoted in your article, plunged into a red hood hive of activity with pumping music. Right. Yes. I mean, I, I, I detected a very similar kind of um, response um, to the Orca submarine deal, which kind of um, preceded the Red Alert um, series by a few weeks. And what um, uh, was, was quite um, uh, dispiriting to me was that um, the media very much went along with the government's line about AUKUS. And I didn't feel that there was a lot of genuine scrutiny of that deal. And, you know, it, it's come out since um, that... There are many, many questions around this deal. You know, there's a very long history of um, uh, um, Australian government pronouncements, both Labor and Liberal, around um, submarines in particular, um, and announcements that ultimately end up going nowhere. Um, and it, uh, I think there's a very real risk that this AUKUS deal is, is headed down the same path. And at the same time, of course, we've made um, the single biggest investment in defence spending in Australia's history, um, for submarines that, A, may never arrive, uh, B, may never arrive within a good time in which we may actually need them, mm. and C, submarines that um, may have an extremely limited um, service life, um, perhaps as little as 10 years even by the time that they do arrive. So 
there are many questions that we should be asking about this. And, of course, fundamentally, what we're talking about is a, is a spend of nearly $400 billion. Mm. And as I point out in the article, that um, by any stretch of the imagination is, is a vast sum of money. Yeah. I mean, I, I mentioned just as two examples. I'm sure there are plenty of others. But um, according to one source, um, that amount of money could um, bring 2 million Australians out of poverty and it could also pay for the, the, full the full electrification of every Australian household. So when you're talking about sums that big, you're talking about an amount of money that could be revolutionary, that, that, that could um, genuinely change the, the, the face of um, Australian society. And yet we're spending it on submarines that may well never eventuate and may be obsolete by the time that they do. And at the same time, of course, deals like that um, I think are very much playing into this kind of um, uh, the atmosphere of uh, um, xenophobia and xenophobia that I think articles like the, the Red Alert series are really drumming up at the moment. And that's incredibly worrying. Yeah, definitely. And so it, it seems like the, the media stories of China and Australia won't seem to end until we don't know until we don't know when. And so what, what do you think this could possibly end up with if there really is a war? And do you see a win situation out of this or something Australia can win against? Look, I mean, um, one of the points that I make in, in the article, which I think is not very controversial, is that, um, excuse me, there no is no way that um, Australia could uh, win a war against um, China. It's, um, it's, it's an absurd idea. Um, and, you know, people would say that um, the AUKUS deal and other deals of this nature is, is essentially our, our ticket to um, American protection um, in, in the event of such a war. But, of course, that's not something that, that we can rely on, given the incredibly unstable um, kind of geopolitical situation right now. And, of course, we've got the very real prospect of another Trump presidency um, in 2024, and who knows where that might leave um, the alliance. Um, and so, there, again, there are very real questions about um, this idea that Australia has to stump up um, a certain amount of money to be able to buy protection from the United States. And when you think about that, it, it, it sounds like a protection racket, and, and that's what it is. Um, and looked at in that light, uh, that's not a relationship that we should be continuing to pursue, I think, for a long time. There's been a perception, and I think it's the correct perception, that that Australia is um, uh, can, can perform very much the role of uh, America's lapdog, um, and in fact is sometimes out, out out front, which is not something that people realise. But um, uh, you know, Australia under John Howard's leadership was was very much leading the charge into Iraq, um, mm. and we've been in that situation previously with other international conflicts as well. So. Um, uh, there is this, I think, quite disturbing um, kind of bloodlust blood that, that we often see in, in, in the political class. And, of course, it's, um, it, it's very much mixed up with, you know, what we call the, the military-industrial complex, um, this kind of endless circuit of, of warmongering and, and arms manufacture. Um, and, you know, we, we see even those links with arms manufacturers in the panel that was put together for the Red Alert series, which is, again, something I talk a little bit about in the article. Mm. So I, I think all of this, it's both incredibly troubling, but it also has a long history in Australia, and I think we, we do well to remember that, that, that history. Mm -hmm. yep. 
And um, yeah, we don't have much. We don't really have much time. So just one last question for you, Ben. What do you think is the one thing that Australia can actually win against? Um, I, I I think you're asking about uh, maybe yes. the the final part of my my piece <laughs> where I um talk a little bit about the the most recent um United Nations climate change report, uh, which came out around the same time as the uh, the Red Alert series, and. My argument here really is that we do face a genuine existential crisis, but it's not a militarised conflict with China. It's climate change. And we know that there is a very, very small window left now for us to remain below 1.5 degrees of global warming. And according to this United Nations report, we do have a very limited amount of time to avert course before we reach that point and um, are met with climate catastrophe. And so what I would argue is that these kinds of investments of hundreds of billions of dollars and you know newspaper headlines and front pages, were we to see all of this marshaled against the fight against climate change, um, I, I, I think that would be money and time and effort and editorial power um, well spent rather than this kind of continual drumbeat of war, which might be satisfying to um, um, to a certain subsection of the Australian media and the Australian population, but I think it's, it's inflammatory and dangerous. And I think, again, I, I think it elides the real existential crisis that we face, which undoubtedly is, is the, the climate emergency. And according to the UN, we do have still an amount of time to avert this before it happens. And that's more than I can say. <laughs> It feels like it's sometimes uh, in terms of war against China. Mm, definitely. Well, Ben, thank, thank you so much for joining us today. And yeah, uh, I hope people, uh, I hope the media, sorry, uh, actually pay more attention to more important topics. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Grace. Thank you. Cheers, appreciate it. Cheers. That was Ben Brooker, writer, editor and critic, who recently wrote an article for Overland called Conga Line to Armageddon, uh, the rush to get us into a war with China, where we discuss media commentaries on a possible invasion by China and why war is still even in discussion. So head over to overland.org.au to read his full article. Yeah, and I think now we can move on to you, Claudia. So... Moving to the university sector, yesterday The Guardian ran an article titled Appallingly Unethical, Why Australian Universities Are at Breaking Point. It cites a senior tertiary academic who reportedly describes the once hallowed institutions as becoming like supermarkets, firing so many staff that students are now like customers at the self-checkout counters, checking their own goods out, responsible for their own education. That university job losses is a critical issue is hardly new news, nor is the disgruntled position of the casual and contract staff who often bear the burden of high workloads and unpaid hours and job insecurity. In February, the National Tertiary Education Union issued a report showing that university employees around the country have been subsidising their employers through unpaid work to the tune of over $80 million dollars. This figure is now reported to have risen to over $100 million. We take a listen now to Dr Alison Barnes, National President of the National Tertiary Education Union. 
She spoke to Annie McLaughlin from 3CR's Stick Together program about the report and the workplace issues facing staff at Australia's tertiary institutions. So there's been a report, you put out a report that uh, has actually looked at various case studies uh, that relate to the higher education sector. And uh, and the union has uh, actually gone so far to say that uh, uh, wage theft is a business model that uh, higher education universities are using. The, the question is, uh, could you please uh, talk to us about how uh, universities are shortchanging their staff? Yeah. Fantastic. That's an excellent question. Um, look, wage theft is uh, an absolute aberration and really common across, we believe, all Australian universities. But this report points to uh, instances that are on the public record. Uh, wage theft at our public universities occurs in a number of ways. It can be the reclassification of work, so the work remains the same, but you're suddenly paid less for it. It can be your overtime and long service leave and those things not being taken into account. It can be not being paid for the actual time in which it takes you to uh, mark essays and like. So there's a number of different ways ways that uh, universities steal the wages of their most vulnerable and easy to exploit staff. Um, but it's a really damning indictment on our universities that they're engaging in these practices. It's a really appalling reflection on our million-dollar vice-chancellors, and I call them that because they are often paid uh, a million-dollar remuneration packages. Um, it's a really damning indictment um, on them and business models that have wage theft really baked into them. Now, the unions have been an integral part in discovering this level of wage theft. That's right, isn't it? Yeah, this is absolutely true. Look, we've been um, aware of wage theft... Uh, for a number of years across the sector and the brave and fantastic work of rank and file, casual activists, staff across university, we've been um, campaigning for a long time to not only recover wages for people who've had them stolen, but um, shine a light on university practices. You know, we've been, we've been trying for a long time to, to draw attention to it. So it's not just us who is now talking about the problem um, of wage theft in universities. You now see, for example, the uh, Fair Work Ombudsman coming out and talking about the culture of sort of passive resistance that university management have uh, to avoid to avoid you know their obligations to staff. You know that primary obligation is that you you paid the wages to which you are entitled. Now the the next thing about this is wage theft is directly linked to the scourge of insecure work, with casual fixed term staff disproportionately affected. Now this is. Uh, part of the university's move towards casualising the workforce. Oh, absolutely true. Wage theft is the symptom of the problem and the problem is the staggering numbers of people in our universities who are employed on uh, either on a casual basis or on rolling contracts. It beggars belief the extent of kind of insecure work across our universities and insecure work has a really toxic effect often on the individual who's employed in that way. You can't plan for modest holidays. We hear lots of examples of people being unable to afford rent or feed their children, let alone afford mortgages and life. So it's absolutely toxic for the individual not having that kind of 
economic security really eats at people's um, self-esteem and their capacities to kind of plan their lives. But it's really toxic for universities. Like the core fundamental principles of Australian universities, for example, one of the cornerstones of Australian universities is the notion of academic freedom. You can't exercise academic freedom unless you have secure employment. So it's absolutely appalling that there are more people who are employed casually and on fixed-term contracts across universities than there are places like uh, Woolies or Coles. You know, we're looking at a situation where, you know, uh, two-thirds of people across our universities don't have secure employment. Now, the thing is that uh, that goes contrary to the definition of casual, doesn't it? I mean, because most of those people on those contracts are doing jobs that have to be done and are continued after the period that their contract finishes. I think if you look at lots of kind of, for example, casual teaching that happens at universities, we're arguing that, you know, we need to change the definition of casual because those people are employed, you know, semester in and semester out. But because of, I suppose, problems with those things like, you know, breaks and semesters that, you know, they often can't convert to full-time employment. So we're really arguing rethink, I suppose, the nature of um, the employment relationship in universities because it's just not working for staff, students or arguably Australian societies who damage, you know, the very fabric of our institutions. Now, there's a couple of things that have come up. Monash actually copped to a $8.6 million underpayment, but uh, it... Uh, actually uh, it also has balked at the notion that uh, they have underpaid uh, tutors for the consult student consultation time, which they insisted that they had to do. Um, and they've gone back to the Fair Work Commission to try and change their EBA retrospectively. Now, that's quite a dangerous concept, isn't it? Oh, I think it sets a, a really dangerous precedent um, to try and retrospectively uh, alter uh, an enterprise um, agreement, a really dangerous perspective. But it's also an example of something that, that might be legal, but, you know, arguably immoral. I think this is a really appalling act of Monash University. Monash has uh, a budget of $3 billion and it made an extraordinary operating surplus last year. It has the money it should pay its staff correctly. Well, you see, it's interesting because Aldi staff, uh, were, the Fair Work Commission told Aldi that it had to uh, back pay staff, that Aldi had mm. insisted that they turn up 15 minutes or so before their shift started. Uh, and, and that was part of the requirement of their employment. And so the Fair Work Commission actually insisted that, uh, told Aldi they actually had to pay those people for that 15 minutes, and they were back paid. Um, Monash is saying to their tutors that they have to make themselves available for an hour for student consultation time and do it unpaid. Monash's, I think, behaviour in this instance is a really indicative of a kind of laissez-faire, irresponsible attitude to your staff. They're responsible for groundbreaking research. They're responsible for educating students across the country. To treat staff in this way, I think, is, is irresponsible and reckless. You know, Monash really needs to come to the party and do the right thing um, for its staff. Now, in Queensland, the Queensland University, they've just gone on strike for a number of days because 
their university is dragging its feet. It's uh, 600 days since their EBA has lapsed. What's going on there? Oh, look, I think we just need uh, management to bargain. You know, workers there are, uh, want, you know, safe workloads. They want fair pay. The things that workers want are not unreasonable things. And we really need uh, management to, to, you know, really get that agreement made. And this is why staff are striking. And, it's you know, their claims are completely reasonable. They want safe, manageable workloads. They want secure jobs. And they want, you know, wages that, 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 that keep up with the cost of living. They don't want real pay cuts. And I think management needs to step up and, um, and negotiate with staff. Well, the NTEU has got three main uh, uh, demands. You want criminalisation of wage theft. Now, that has recently happened in Victoria. Have you seen any uh, changes to uh, the situation because of such a thing? Oh, look, we want criminalisation of wage theft, but if you look at Victoria, that's a state where you know Victorian universities are leading the table in terms of kind of recovered wages. So we want um, criminalisation, of course, but we also want the laws changed so that we can win... Uh, and secure back pay for our workers, uh, for workers across the sector in a much quicker um, and effective fashion. You know, management should not be able to hold on to those wages. We want a whole raft of changes which really go to, I suppose, um, protecting workers from wage theft. But what we really need to see happen is we need to see the reliance on insecure work across our sector end. We really need to see... Uh, management changing the way they employ people and if we if they don't do it i really think it's incumbent on our current federal government to put an end to these appalling practices by you know university management they need to deal with wage theft but as we said earlier Annie, that's the that's the symptom and they need to to deal with the root of the problem and that's insecure work many of these universities are actually public assets it's hard to imagine that uh uh, such uh, things could be happening in such public industries. Uh, you think that there should be an inquiry, state and federal, into the causes of management's practices within these institutions? Yeah, we need a root and uh, branch review of governance in our universities. Like, as, as you say, these are public institutions. You know, the fact that our universities are behaving in such a fashion really makes you question the nature of governance in these institutions. We are bringing beloved institutions, institutions that should be in the press for the amazing teaching that they're doing and the amazing research um, that they're producing rather than stealing the wages of their staff. We need to really have a review, uh, you know, in a review um, into university governance so that we can, you know, stamp out this rot. You know, it really needs to end and I think there needs to be a review of, of university governance. And that was Annie McLaughlin from 3CR's Stick Together program speaking with Dr Alison Barnes, National President of the National Tertiary Education Union, about the wage theft report and the workplace issues facing staff at Australian tertiary institutions. Stick Together airs every Wednesday morning at 8.30am, straight after The Brecky Show. And this interview first aired on the 1st of March.
From Iran to the Americas, the Pacific to Palestine, and here in so-called Australia, people are standing up for freedom and liberation. This May Day at Melbourne State Library, join the Voice of Revolution Iran Melbourne, the Black People's Union, renegade activists, unionists, and people from all over the world as we stand together in understanding that we are all in this together. A lineup of speakers and music from around the world demanding justice and celebrating our common struggles and our common humanity will be announced on the event page soon. You can find the event by searching May Day for Freedom and Liberation on Facebook. May Day for Freedom and Liberation, 5.30pm, Monday 1st of May at State Library, Victoria. A 3CR community radio supporter.
You're listening to 855 AM. And you're listening to Wednesday Breakfast. Thanks for tuning in to us on this wet Wednesday morning. And before the break, we heard Pink Floyd with another brick in the wall. We're now going to the second segment in our Autism Awareness Month special series. Today, we'll be hearing from Beth Radulski, an autistic autism researcher, PhD candidate, and project manager of neurodiversity at La Trobe University. Beth is also an active TikToker with over 40,000 followers. Beth's research argues that neurotypical privilege and social discrimination contribute to the burnout of autistic people. I spoke to Beth yesterday, and the first question I asked was, what exactly is neurotypical privilege? Uh, so neurotypical privilege is, I suppose, having the privilege uh, of shaping cultural and institutional norms for social interaction. So it basically just means that neurotypical people um, are a dominant majority group in society. Um, and because of this, um, as we'll, I suppose, chat about a bit more later, perhaps, neurotypical people often have much better overall mental health and well-being because they don't have to face minority group stress. So neurotypical privilege is, you know, firstly about who has the power to create social norms in society, and secondly, um, how does that impact well-being? And what does it mean in terms of the way most people or the majority see the world and their expectations around what is, in inverted commas, normal social behaviour? Mm. So neurotypical privilege um, basically means that neurotypical social behaviors and communication patterns are considered, uh, you know, good, normal, healthy, uh, the right way of functioning, uh, whereas neuro-minorities, uh, and that would include autism, are often seen as broken, disordered, um, or, you know, suffering from a sort of medical ailment because they don't function uh, in the same way as neurotypical people function. So what does this mean then for the people whose behaviours are different to the majority group, such as autistic and neurodivergent people? So what this essentially means is that if you want to achieve participation and inclusion in society, you have to uh, adopt or assimilate with neurotypical norms. So oftentimes this means doing what we refer to as masking and camouflaging uh, so masking being concealing neuro-minority traits. So for autistic people, that might mean not finger flapping, uh, for example, and then camouflaging by blending in with those neurotypical norms. So you might um, make eye contact in a particular way, for example. Uh, and, and if you don't do those things, often you'll experience difficulty with education, employment, social relationships, and general participation in society. And you argue that this system of neuro inequity uh, has parallels with other systems of cultural dominance, for example, whiteness and heterosexuality uh, are both dominant cultural gender norms. Can you expand on what you mean by this? Absolutely. Uh, so, you know, like other forms of privilege, like those which you've just kind of discussed in the gender uh, and ethnicity realms. So neurotypical privilege operates on sort of social, cultural, and institutional levels, um, and it's really deeply intersectional. Uh, so I suppose, you know, an example in the gender and sexuality realm might be that um, 
gender roles are often built largely around neurotypical norms. So autistic girls and women, for example, might have to completely sacrifice uh, many of their autistic traits and aspects of their identity if they want to come across uh, as feminine or pass as a good girl or a good woman based on that gender role. Um, that might mean, you know, changing tone of voice, changing body language, um, and, and, and masking autistic traits in other ways. Um, in the domain of sort of racialization, uh, autistic people of color uh, also experience this uh, intersectionally. So there's uh, often difficulty with accurately assessing autism uh, in people who are not uh, sort of uh, cis, uh, straight, white men of a certain class. Um, so a, lo a lot more difficulty with accessing uh, accurate assessments. Um, and also uh, autistic people of color often report a lot of pressure to conform to neurotypical norms uh, to avoid, for example, the threat of police violence. So, um, you know, there are some parallels, but it's also uh, primarily just a very, very intersectional form of privilege that will impact uh, different uh, minoritized and oppressed groups uh, in very particular ways. And what are the impacts? You mentioned masking and camouflaging. Uh can cause stress and, and burnout. Can you tell us a bit more about this? Yeah, so um, unfortunately, masking and camouflaging, uh, research is showing that they are very strongly linked to anxiety, depression, identity loss, exhaustion, burnout, uh, even suicidality. Um, autistic people have a suicide rate uh, somewhere between seven to nine times higher than average. Um, and a much lower life expectancy, um, up to around half, according to some studies. Um, and, and that lower life expectancy is largely driven by uh, self-harm, self-injury, and, and suicidality, unfortunately. So um, while you know, masking and camouflaging aren't solely responsible for these outcomes, they're significant drivers of these outcomes. Uh, and there's a, a wonderful autistic academic, uh, Monique Botha, who argues that autistic people experience minority group stress. Um, and this theory was actually originally coined to explain the disproportionately poor mental uh, mental health and, and general well-being of um, LGBTQIA plus communities. Um, and it was found that there is actually a... Uh, the stress of uh, experiencing oppression and discrimination on a day-to-day -day basis can translate into very poor uh, mental health outcomes. So uh, Botha argues that autistic people experience minority stress as well. Can we zoom in a little bit more on what this might look like? Can you talk a little bit about why this particular behavioral modification process is so tiring? Like what does it involve? Yeah, sure. So uh, I suppose I, I can give an example based in lived experience, if that's helpful. Um, so for me, masking and camouflaging uh, often is really strongly correlated with gender performativity. So uh, I suppose it's a bit difficult to do it uh, without uh, without being able to visibly see me, but that might include, for example, I'm, I had a really different tone of voice when I mask and camouflage. So right now, um, I'm probably 
I, I'm using my genuine autistic uh, tone of voice, but if if I wanted to mask in camouflage, I might change my voice to sound a lot more feminine. Uh, I used to do this every day, all the time. I was really mindful that people used to tell me that I was too loud and I tried to be softer and sound a bit more uh, feminine passing. Um, my body language was also very different. So instead of, you know, finger flapping or stimming or rocking back and forth, I would try to sit still. I would try to, uh, <laughs> I, I kind of, turned into a bit of an anthropologist and I would study, you know, what are these uh, feminine movie characters doing, like in Legally Blonde, for example, and is that how you pass as a good girl or woman? So to pass as neurotypical, I had to adopt uh, really heavily gendered traits as well, um, which is, you know, research shows that this is very exhausting. Uh, you're, you're constantly calculating in your mind, um, what volume is my voice at? Is my tone of voice okay? Am I understanding or making the right amount of eye contact that's expected of me in this situation? Um, am I interpreting somebody else's facial expressions in the right way? Am I responding to those facial expressions in the way that I'm expected to? Um, and it's exhausting. It, it just takes a huge physical, uh, psychological and emotional toll to constantly be on top of all of these things. If you've just tuned in, we've been hearing from Beth Radolsky, an autistic autism researcher, PhD candidate and neurodiversity project manager at La Trobe University. Beth has been explaining that what is deemed healthy or good behaviour in society is framed by neurotypical majority patterns. This can lead autistic people to mask or camouflage their behaviours in order to fit in, at the expense of their well-being. The situation is further complicated by gendered social expectations. Particularly for autistic people assigned female birth, there's a huge amount of pressure, uh, perhaps additional or at, at least intersectional pressure uh, to mask autistic traits because they're perceived very differently than they might be in cis boys and men. So, you know, for example, um, if I, as an autistic person, if I'm uh, quite tied to routine and I like things done uh, in a particular way, um, an, a, an autistic boy might be read as, oh, you know, he just likes his routine, he just likes his structure, whereas I might have been perceived as high maintenance or a diva. Um, if I use my autistic uh, voice, I might be um, perceived a, a certain choice words that we might use to refer to women who don't use the right tone of voice. Um, so I think, you know, there are huge consequences uh, for not passing as neurotypical when neurotypicality is so intersectional with your gender role. And the binary of men and women, boys and girls, um, is quite prevalent in discussions about autism. You know, we often hear that girls are un underdiagnosed, for example, versus boys mm -hmm. and that a lot of the uh, information and data that has been based on male data. Where does that leave the gender diverse autistic community in terms of the way in which they're understood? Mm. So this is a really new and emerging area in research. Um, I think certainly uh, there are a lot of misperceptions about you know, people who don't fit within the gender binary uh, when they're also autistic. I, I suppose one way that this manifests is that, you know, there's sometimes a view that um, if you're autistic and you don't identify 
uh, within the gender binary or you don't identify with the gender you were assigned at birth, um, that this is because, you know, being autistic prevents you from understanding gender because it's part of social life. And there's this kind of um, idea that it's autism that's causing this mistaken or, or uh, <laughs> ill-advised approach to uh, understanding your own gender. But I think it's really important to keep in mind that, you know, for a lot of autistic people, they might not identify with their assigned gender role in part. Um, certainly there are many reasons for that, but in part because those gender roles weren't built with autistic people in mind. You know, gender roles are based on multiple norms in society. And this includes, you know, class, ethnicity, um, neurotype as part of that. Uh, so it's entirely understandable that a lot of autistic people don't identify with their gender assigned at birth because those norms were not built with them in mind to begin with. Um, and we definitely need a lot more research uh, in this area because it is a very new area of research at the moment. You're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast, and we've been hearing from autistic researcher and PhD candidate at La Trobe University, Beth Radulski. Beth also manages the Neurodiversity Project at La Trobe University. So before wrapping up, I wanted to find out what sort of environment exists for autistic students and staff at the university. So the Neurodiversity Project at La Trobe uh, has focused largely on cultural and institutional change. Um, so most of our supports are, are, are kind of operating at that level. So for example, we offer neurodiversity ally and accessibility training uh, to our staff in both academic and professional areas. Um, we've focused on policy change. Uh, we've also uh, empowered leadership from neuro-minority groups. So at the moment, we have neurodiversity networks available with both staff and student branches, and those networks are run and managed by um, people who are members of neuro-minority groups. And, you know, we have Teams channels and we have events. Uh, we have professional development opportunities. Um, one of the programs that we're running now, a student-facing program, uh, is a placement program. So um, we have an industry placements minor at La Trobe where students can take either an elective 100 hours of placement during their degree, or they can do up to 400 hours to get a minor in industry placements. And the Neurodiversity Project is a placement host. So um, students who either identify as neuro minorities or who are interested in supporting neurodiversity throughout their careers can come and do a placement on the Neurodiversity Project where they can learn how to facilitate neurodiversity inclusion in their future workplaces. Uh, so it's quite a broad approach. We At this point, we have several different programs running um, but really, it all focuses on cultural and institutional change and empowering leadership from neuro-minorities. And what sort of feedback are you getting from staff and students in the university environment about how comfortable they feel in that environment? So I think, you know, I have found it really, really wonderful in this role because I often get emails from people just saying, you know, this is the first place where I've ever felt like there is actually a community for me. Um, I think a lot of people, you know, feel that they don't have that sense of belonging. Um, and when you have a neurodiversity community and they know that there's a place where they can safely unmask and come and, you know, be out and disclose and discuss 
what we often refer to as neuro minority culture or autistic culture, ADHD culture, um, there's a place for them and, and there's a place for them to really feel like they are a meaningful and valued part of Latrobe's community. Um, I think Latrobe is a really unique institution and in that one of its main um, visions is, is providing educational and employment accessibility to underrepresented cohorts. And I think that, you know, when we're talking about neuro minorities accounting for at least 20% of society, so one in five people, it's really important that neurodiversity is central to that vision. And what are you seeing across the university sector? Uh, are you in touch with what's happening at other campuses across the country? We're hearing a lot about cuts to staffing, and I just wondered how that might be affecting support services that support autistic and neurodiverse students and staff. Yeah, so I think, you know, anytime when you know, finances are limited, it's going to be challenging um, to provide services. I think it's really important that this is an area that continues to be prioritized uh, because what we're seeing now is particularly um, amongst new and incoming students, we are now seeing, you know, a very significant percentage of, and, and I'll speak about autism specifically, um, although neurodiversity includes quite a number of, well, neurodiversity includes everybody, but neuro-minority groups could, could refer to many groups, but in autism specifically, um, a vast majority of people with a current um, identification of autism are under the age of 25. And that means a lot of people coming into university, larger numbers than ever before, are autistic. Um, and in the adulthood realm, uh, we have what we refer to as a lost generation. So rates of uh, assessments and identifications for autism, ADHD, and beyond are just climbing exponentially. So I think, you know, it's really important that we prioritize this area now because it is an area of massive growth both now and in the future. And if we don't plan for that, uh, we'll quickly find ourselves falling behind. And that was Latrobe University researcher and neurodiversity project manager Beth Radulski speaking about autism and neurodiversity cultural supports at Latrobe University. For more information on Latrobe's neurodiversity project, check out our show notes on the 3CR website. You can follow Beth Radulski on Twitter and TikTok at Beth Radulski. And to learn more about autism, head to the AMAZE website, www.amaze.org.au. And if anyone is wanting to seek support, call the Autism or Connect National Autism Helpline, 1300 308 699. And just a note that the Young Leaders Programme is open for young Victorians aged 14 to 25 years who identify as having a disability. Applications close today, April 12 at 5pm. And if you'd like to check that out, you can find the application form and information at capital Y A C V I C dot org dot AU forward slash young leaders. That's Y A C Vic org.au forward slash young leaders. I hope you've been enjoying our special autism awareness series. Tune in 
at the same time next week when we'll be hearing about the experience of autistic children and school parents. I've had a few jobs over the years. None I've really loved. A mate suggested I use my skills to teach. Turns out I only needed to study for under two years. Now I'm in demand in a secure career I love. Come on, kids, gather round. Are you ready? Fast-track your study and start teaching sooner with an accelerated learning program. Visit vic.gov.au forward slash teach the future. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne. A 3CR supporter. And welcome back um, to 3CR. Uh, on uh, You're listening to Wednesday Breakfast. And, yeah, we're... Um, wrapping up the show right now. Yeah, it's been a busy show this morning. Some really important stories about uh, media reports on war with China, um, the collapse of a major building company, and university cuts and autism. So yeah, lots to lots to think about. Hope mm. you've all enjoyed the show, and yeah, we want to thank all our guests for joining us this morning and yeah we'll catch you all next week and yeah it's been great um having to do a live segment for the first time well done Um, good job good job (laughs) yeah i look forward to doing that um a lot more hopefully as time goes back uh, as time goes on yeah excellent awesome So stay tuned for Stick Together. And that's all from the Wednesday Brekkie team. We'll see you next week. 3CR would like to thank our sponsors, Earth Greetings. Cards that connect, care, and celebrate. Support wildlife and habitat with every purchase. Inspired by nature, giving back to the planet. Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.